Amen. Thank you, Daniel, for that prayer. And good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Welcome to community. Um, it's good to be church family. Now, we had a, a kind of a party here last night, and that's why these decorations are here. Our theme for our church annual meeting was Take Courage Together, and I gave that um, theme to Vicki, and she wasn't sure what to do, but she came up with this brilliant um, artistic expression um, of these fish swimming together, swimming in a school, this diversity of fish coming together and being together um, at the center, uh, Jesus Christ. And so uh, Vicki's not here today. Uh, we thanked her last night, but um, she has a testimony to share about this that we're going to have her share at some point in the near future. So it's good to be with you all. Now, we are in the midst of Galatians, and we've been walking through Galatians verse by verse. And we don't always go through books of the Bible like this, but it's it's fun to do it a couple of times a year at least, and to kind of unpack where we've been so far, I want to lift up this justification, so um, saved, if you will, by faith in Christ is the point that Paul is trying to make in this book, that we're not saved by the law, we're saved by Jesus, both individually and as a community. There's meant to be one family of God, Jews and Gentiles together. Um, last week, we talked about we're not just justified or saved by the law, but we're actually grown by the law. We grow not by the law. We grow by Christ. We're not sanctified by the law. We're sanctified by Christ. And Paul makes these dual points evident to us as we walk through Galatians. Um, so we're going to go uh, now Galatians three fifteen to 27. But before we do, let's pray. God, I thank you um, for the ways you're working in and through this community, but I pray right now as we dig into this text, may you speak to each one of us on what we need to hear from it today, Jesus, in your name, amen. Verse 15, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, is that clear? <laughs> it's a little tricky, so I want to break this down passage by passage. We'll have more verses that we'll get to. So Paul is saying it's really black and white what's at stake here. It's the promise of God, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he is addressing the agitators or the Jewish believers in Galatia who are saying, no, it's actually the law that's important and following the law that's important. And they want the Gentile believers to follow the law in the way they have. That's how we are accepted. Now, they're saying Gentiles must follow the law. And here's the thing. Are they wrong? The Jewish believers are saying, we were required to follow the law. They should be as well. Well, who gets to decide how the law applies to us? 
Paul helps us to understand where he's coming from. This is his argument to them. He is saying that the original covenant, there can be no changing it. The law must have a different purpose than the ones you're ascribing to it. What was the original intention of the law? That Abraham should have a single worldwide family consisting of a group not by following the law, that's not what brought them together, but by faith. What was that original promise that Paul mentions here? We talked about it um, during several of the weeks. That original promise goes back to Genesis 12, that he would be a blessing to all nations. Through Abraham's seed, it would be a blessing to all nations. And even before that, in the beginning chapters of Genesis, we see this charge to humanity to flourish to flourish in creation. So are these laws a blessing to the Gentile believers? Do these laws lead to flourishing for the Gentile believers? Paul explores what this actually means in practice. So verse 16, he says, God made promises to Abraham and his seed. The seed is singular. The seed here means family, one family incorporated by the Messiah, Jesus himself. That's what God always intended. Verse 17 and 18, now we touched on this last week. He said, Abraham was justified by his belief, by his faith. You can't say the law is necessary for justification because it didn't come until 430 years after Abraham. That's when the law was given to Moses. So it's not the law that justifies you. It was God's promise and Abraham's belief in that promise. Let's move on to verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? And maybe you're asking that question too. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So why did God give the law? Paul is saying the law was a necessary in-between time from the promise to Abraham to the fulfillment of Jesus. It functions in this in-between space. And between this promise, he says, and the capital S seed between Jesus. The law sort of is this temporary quarantine. We're familiar with quarantines, right? A quarantine until the vaccine, the ultimate vaccine, and not the type of vaccine that you have to keep getting, um, but the vaccine being Jesus here, the solution to the problem of humanity. This is why the law was functional for a set period of time, why it functioned in the in-between stage. It functioned until the arrival of Jesus. Verse 19 also says this, the law had been given through the angels. Now, <laughs> this is a little confusing. It's a little hard to understand 
what Paul means by that. But what I think he's trying to say is this was God's law. This was not human law. And it was mediated initially through Moses, but ultimately through God himself to bring them into one family, Jews and Gentiles. A Messiah was needed in order to do that. It was not possible on their own. See, the road, the pathway to blessing all nations had hit a roadblock with Israel. Israel was in exile. Israel had wandered away. And so that roadblock needed to be cleared up, and Jesus is the one who clears that roadblock. Verse 21, the law is not opposed to God. It's not opposed to God. But we see different applications of the law through Scripture. When we talked about progressive revelation back in Lent, we see, you know, first sacrifices are required, then sacrifices are not required. We see Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, but I say. And now we see Paul saying, okay, yes, this is the Mosaic law, but you're understanding it not in the right way. He reapplies it for them. The key, he says, is God's promise itself, that we gain access to the promise through faith. Let's carry on to verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Paul talks about the law being this custodian or this nanny or this babysitter, that it functioned as a role of Israel as a child. And this was needed while Israel was a child, but now it's no longer needed. They have graduated into adulthood with the coming of the Messiah. Israel is now God's grown-up child. Israel has reached the age of responsibility or trustworthiness. And so they are ready for the Messiah's coming. N.T. Wright says it this way, the regulations designed to keep Israel as it were in quarantine are now set aside, not because they were bad, ill-judged, unnecessary, or not intended by God, but because they were good, vital, effective, and have now completed their task. See, he explains in verse 26 that we are all children of God through what? Through faithfulness, not through the following of the law. And we enter the kingdom, verse 27, through baptism. Baptized into Christ, being clothed with Christ, we put on the Messiah. Like we had talked about last week, where sort of the prodigal son was covered in shame and the father runs to him, embraces him, wraps his arms around him, covers his shame. That is what God does for us through Jesus Christ. In baptism, we are covered by the Messiah. And now they are entered into one family. So let's step back from this text a little bit and say, what does this mean? The title is Free to Fail. How does that relate to this text? I was asking several people in the community this week about what does it mean to fail for you? And um, in your mind right now, you don't have to say it out loud. As a child, when you hear the word fail, 
What did it mean for you? Maybe there's memories that are conjured up. As an adult, what does it mean to fail? In your workplace, in your families, in the church. I had a variety of answers from thinking about exams as a child um, to life choices, to relationships, to being so consumed with making a critical error of failing an exam to not being able to get into the school they wanted and unsure about what their career prospects would be, putting so much pressure on themselves to never fail so they wouldn't have to suffer the consequences of that. I had um, somebody talk about the time they actually did fail their exam. They were struggling. For me, I was thinking about a childhood memory, and it wasn't about exams at all. I I cared very little for my schoolwork. Um, But it was when I got caught shoplifting. I mean, it wasn't the shoplifting itself. That that probably should have been the cue that I feel like a failure, but it was getting caught because then I knew my parents were going to find out, and they were going to think badly of me. So what does failure mean in your own life? I want to look at two biblical characters, Judas and Peter. Now, we have the gift of hindsight to see how things turned out for them, but let's take a look at their lives in real time, in real motion. For Judas, how would you assess his life up until the time of the betrayal? In many ways, Judas was a success in worldly terms. He was success in ways that might impress us. He was successful both financially and politically. He had arranged to be put in charge of the money. The disciples trusted him. They gave him that task, and he walked and did that task. He was also able to see his plan to fruition. He didn't like the way Jesus' plan was going to the cross. He most likely wanted a political revolution, and so he devises a plan to make that happen. He has the money. He makes friends with the leaders. He betrays Jesus with the money so that Jesus will be arrested. And most scholars think he thought then Jesus would take on a different form of being a Messiah, would, would kick Rome out of Jerusalem. He was successful in fulfilling the plan that he had. He devised a plan. He executed the plan. In a sense, he was quite successful. He accomplished his goal. Now, Peter, on the other hand, let's look at his life up until the time of the denials. Peter was a failure in ways I think we most feel to fail would be devastating. He was ineffective, especially in a crisis. His ignorance was on display. He didn't do well in social situations. He was sticking his foot into his mouth. When it's the Mount of Transfiguration, he goes up and he misconstrues the situation and tells Jesus, let's make tents for everybody and let's, let's stay here. When, when Jesus says that he has to take his cross and suffer and die, Peter's like, no, 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 that's not for you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. When it's time to step under the water, Peter's like, yeah, yeah, let me step out. And what does he do? He, he sinks. On the night of denying Jesus, he, he pulls out the sword and uses the sword. He's misunderstood what Jesus is all about. Jesus heals him. And then very soon after, Peter denies Jesus three times. He wasn't a friend you would want with you in your time of need. 
He's not the type of person we would want to bring to a party. Now, time has shown us a different result for each of them. But so often, I think the world is more concerned with success that Judas showed to us. Financial wealth, political power. And I think we still live in fear of failing in the ways Peter did, of being ineffective, of stumbling around, putting your foot into your mouth, of getting it wrong. But here's the thing. Peter's failures were never disasters. Rather, his failures opened up in his heart places for God's grace to minister. The denials were not the end of the story for Peter. As we know, the story goes on, and he's restored. He learned incredibly important lessons for his role as the rock that the church was going to be built on. He needed humility. He needed to be in touch with his own weakness. He needed to know the role of his pride. It opened up places in his heart, all of these failures for God to minister. See, the law in Paul's day had been a tool to be successful, a tool to control others, a tool that you could be self-righteous in and condemn everybody else. And Paul wants to speak against that temptation. Eugene Peterson says it this way, the law, as Paul came to understand it, assumed that we would fail and did nothing to prevent it. It left us free to fail. In Paul's exposition, failure is not a thing to be avoided, but an inevitability to be faced and lived through. It left us free to fail. The law assumes we will fail. But the law was always pointing to a relationship with God. But the law becomes a roadblock when we think of the law as the goal. The law was never the goal. It was the promise and the fulfillment that was the goal. Paul tells us the law was a custodian, a babysitter, a nanny, the custodian in that day's job was to transport the child from home to the school. The custodian wasn't the teacher, just the transport. Provide safe travel. When the child grows up, they no longer need a custodian. This is what Paul is saying the function of the law was. As adults, no longer needing a custodian we find that life is complicated. Are we free from failure? No. We will still fail. We will discover our parents' love sometimes had many strings attached. We find that teachers didn't always lead us into freedom but led us into bondage. We find that we want to be good and whole, but that so often we are unfinished. So where do we live? Trying to struggle to fulfill the law? Or do we live with Christ at the center? Do we live by faith and failure? By faith and forgiveness? By faith and mercy? And faith and freedom? 
That is where God does the heart work on us and transforms us. That is where our failures are covered by God. Instead of distracting ourselves from our failures, instead of trying to cover them up, we get transformation from God from the inside out as he covers us and holds us close. When we try to cover up, when we try to do good to make up for some of the bad that we've done, friends, that is not freedom. That is bondage. And Jesus came to save us from that. We see how it changed Paul's life. We, we talked about this um, graphic a couple of several weeks ago, but I just want to repeat it briefly. We see Paul's ministry before Damascus, and we see Paul's ministry after Damascus. Paul wanted to be a faithful follower of God and was doing that as best he could before he encounters Christ on Damascus. He uses his power. He believes faithfulness to the law is the most important thing. His credentials, his force, his physical and verbal violence, his success, if you will. And he was successful at persecuting the church and his following of God. Paul encounters Jesus on the road and it turns everything upside down. Now instead of power, it's weakness. Now instead of self-righteousness, he can say, I am the chief sinner. Instead of faithfulness to the law, it is faithfulness to God. This is why it's so important for him to communicate this to the church at Galatia, that they get this right because the gospel is at stake. When Paul is writing this letter to Galatians, though, he is not very impressive to the church in Galatia. We see Paul as this hero of the faith. He wasn't that to them. He was somebody that wasn't very articulate with his words, somebody who would end up shipwrecked, somebody that maybe isn't that fun to follow. So, no, we're not interested in you. We're not interested in this message of weakness. We're not interested in the way he is following God. We see Paul's transformation. What about Jesus failing? If you were an outsider looking in on Good Friday, what would your assessment be? Most of your followers have left. You've got maybe a few people after living your whole life, a few people still there with you in your darkest time. On Good Friday, the disciples would have assessed Jesus' ministry as fail. Fail. Of course, we know the rest of the story that in that fail was actually victory in that giving of his life, he chose and secured forgiveness for us. In not fighting back, he showed us how to live and how to love. He recycled all of that hate and violence into forgiveness for us, victory over the grave. Now, how does this work in real life? Um, free to fail. One, avoiding failure is not the goal of the Christian life. It is not. If we're living by the law, then what we want to do is avoid failure at all costs. We want to manage our sin, if you will, but that is not God's goal for us. Avoiding failure is not the goal. In Life Group a week ago, our topic came around to failure somehow, and um, Andy was sharing something that I think is very helpful for all of us about failure, um, especially in our parenting and how to walk that. So I'd ask Andy right after the Life Group, hey, can you share this on a Sunday? So he has agreed to share it with us today. Uh, let's welcome up Andy as he shares um, from his heart about avo avoiding failure. 
Thanks, Pastor Wade. Um, so it's the context was we were in the life group, and we were um, talking about some of the uh, difficulties and some of the anxieties and uh, troubles of trying to guide our children. Um, and I think I, well, and at that moment in time, I shared that uh, I had had some conversation with uh, one of my kids who's working uh, overseas and some of the challenges that she was facing um, with her boss and with her or organization um, and the real concern she had of sort of not really performing. Um, and I think at that moment in time, I also shared something, I think that Allison Wong had actually shared with me, um, something about our job as parents is not to pave the road ahead for our kids, um, but to enable them um, to walk whatever path is thrown at them, whether it's rocky or whether it's smooth. Um, so all in all, I'm, I, I, I think, you know, as Pastor Wade has, has said here, um, um, I, I think whether it's our own lives or uh, our, the lives of our children, um, failure at some point is inevitable. Um, it's going to happen. Um, and I think it's very natural, uh, human instinct, uh, for for us, uh, wh whether we're managing our own lives or whether we're trying to shepherd our children along, um, to avoid failure because naturally it's uncomfortable. It's it could be hurtful, um, could be very 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 stressful. Um, so it's very natural to want to do this, but I believe that uh, as Pastor Wade has mentioned, um, avoiding this, um, avoiding the failure, I think causes really two, two big problems. One is you will probably miss out on very, very valuable experiences and opportunities. Um, that's number one. And the second thing is by avoiding this, um, we'll never really build up the muscle strength, the muscle memory that enables us to kind of navigate uh, the, the, the challenges and also continue to learn from these challenges. Um, I think these days we hear a lot um, these, uh, what I say, these three words, uh, uh, resilience, um, grit, and perseverance. And what does that really mean? Um, and how do you sort of develop this? And honestly, I really don't know. Um, I'm going through, you know, I, as I go through my own challenges and failures, and as I try to guide my children, however, I often find myself falling back on, um, at the end of the day, all we can really do um, is to um, it's to be kind, um, to to be as kind as you can, um, to be to be as helpful as you can, um, and to and and whatever you do, you do it to the absolute best of your ability. And 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 as long as I find that if I fall back on that, um, it's helpful um, as kind of a foundation. So I guess um, as, as I listen to to Pastor Wade's um, sermon, um, I think that. You know this uh, resilience, uh, you know perseverance and grit really is, is is a foundation. If you think about it, it's really the foundation of I think understanding God's unconditional love, um, and then how we live our lives uh, in a way that will honor that that love, that that uh, unconditional love that God has given us. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, for sharing that and, and just trying to make it very practical for us that, 
Um, we're not in Galatia, but this text can still speak to us today. Avoiding failure is not the goal. Um, how many of you got to see the, the two ducks in the harbor? Come on, there had to be more than three of you. <laughs> I was telling Eric I was going to take her there, and I kept kind of putting it off. So yesterday, in the rain, we had to go see them. But earlier in the week, we saw this, right? Fail, right? If avoiding failure was the goal, we would have never had the ducks, right? There is always going to be risk when we try something, when we go after something. And so we cannot have the goal as avoiding failure. Second, Paul is wanting us to live by faith. To live by faith, that means there will be uncertainty, that things might go wrong. But we're not trusting in the law at that point. We're trusting in a person, Jesus Christ. We're living by faith in that. Henry Nouwen um, talks about this um, in terms of a trapeze, you know, where you have the, the trapeze artist swinging and the one has to let go and then has to be caught. And he talks about we can only take risks if we trust the catcher. This is what he says. I can only fry, fly freely when I know there is a catcher to catch me. If we are to take risks to be free in the air, in life, we have to know there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. As followers of Jesus, we can trust the catcher. He will not fail us. It allows us to take risk. It allows us to live in the freedom, live in the freedom of even failing because he will not fail us. Number three, to learn from our failures. To learn from them. To not try to run from them, to ignore them, but to dig in. So my son is 24, my daughter is 19. I think it was about five years ago, my son was back from college and we were having a discussion around the table with uh, Maya, Cody, and Erica, and I. And how many of you have read the Amy Tra book on tiger parenting? Um, so we had, and we had had discussions in the family about what it means to be a tiger parent. And so I'm feeling pretty confident in my parenting and say to the kids, which, which of us, you know, mom or I is the more tiger parent fully expecting the kids to say Erica before I even finish the sentence, Cody says, for sure you dad. I was like, what? For sure me. Like, I'm kind of laid back. I'm easygoing. At least that's what I thought. And I said, really? Like, you know, tell me more. He's like, three instances. Boom, boom, boom. Like, it was like they were on the front of his mind. And one of them was his test results. When I brought home this test result, you're like, oh, okay. And I didn't remember it that way, but I, I knew how I must have come across you know, in my parenting of him, of wanting to shower this unconditional love, of wanting the best for him, um, he, he's walking away from some of these moments as not good enough. I'm glad he, you know, felt the safety to share that. But I had to learn from that moment. I couldn't just say, oh, you've misunderstood me. That's not what I meant at all. You know, I, I really do. I had to realize, actually, I need to be aware of how I'm communicating what it means to him, not what I'm thinking it means to him. 
So learn from our failures. Thankfully, Maya said Erica was the tiger parent, so I didn't lose both of them. So one for one. Next, find strength from Jesus, from him, and our weaknesses. Janie and I were talking a lot about the sermon this week and what it means for you to fail, and, and this point is from her. You know, Paul is all about this, letting his weakness be on display, right? Because God then can work through it. Sometimes we're so nervous to show our weakness because we don't want other people to see it. If they know you well enough, believe me, they already know your weaknesses. They know your failings. Protecting them from seeing it is pointless. Hiding it from God is pointless. He already knows about it. How about we let God use it, actually, in ministry, which is what Paul is saying we can do, that God's strength will be made perfect through our strength? No, through our weakness. Let God use these things. Because Jesus does not call people to the law, but to himself. It's a relationship. So we can have the freedom to fail because he is the ultimate catcher. I'd like to invite up the worship team as I close in prayer. God, I thank you that you are a good God, that you hold us closely, that you desire a relationship with each and every one of us. Thank you that you are the great catcher, that you will not fail us. In your name, amen.